And for, for kids, I would say that not only do you get to participate when they ask you to participate and show up, but continue to use your voice, continue to talk. Because one of the great things about being a kid is you get excused a lot for doing it the wrong way, for, for speaking out of turn or for saying something that wasn't so rude or, or that was rude or didn't come out exactly the right way. But no one's going to tell you to stop talking, right? right? They're going to tell you how to talk a little differently and to bring it up in a different way. But your voice is your true, true power. That is the thing that nobody can take away from you. And you get a little grace and a little cushion because you're still learning. Whereas an adult has to figure out how to say it in a kinder jump mode. Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. Our goal of this podcast is to provide insight and wisdom into all things mental health, to sit down with individuals and talk about their journey, how they've broken free from the chains that bind them, to find their flame, their passions, and purpose. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, your host, Steve Opolinick, with another great episode, episode 82, with a good friend of mine, Renee Bracey. Now, Renee and I used to work together at a local private practice office for mental health counseling, and it was good to catch up with her. She's doing amazing things in the counseling field, but also beyond that with local school systems in a nonprofit that she's putting together to really make change in local communities and really work towards equity in education, but then also just in the community in general. She's on the front lines of really helping the youth make change and advocating for change in administration in local educational systems related to DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion. This episode is just full of a lot of gems of knowledge on how to be active in your local government and your local community to be the change that you want to see. And it's a really good stepping off point for anyone who's listening for motivation to do that and to be active in your local community, voting and government and school systems. So without further ado, here's Renee. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Renee Bracey. Renee, so glad that we could get this going. Anyone listening to this, we're just really doing audio because my dumbass forgot to set up the camera the right way. So <laughs> I know if you're listening to the podcast, you're not seeing video anyways, but I just want to own my mistakes. So let's start off with that. Um, Renee, thanks for coming on. I know uh, we've been in talks of doing this for a while, so I'm really excited that we could sit down and talk today. Thank you for having me today. So Renee, the way we usually, you and I have worked together for a couple of years and we, we know each other in that way, but the way I usually start the podcast is with an origin story. 
So I'm going to kick okay. it over to you. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, what you do, all, you know, all the trappings of an introduction, but maybe with some awesome nuances and stories along the way. Sure. An origin story. My son is super into Marvel right now. So I feel like I had to, I had to really be creative here. <laughs> He's going to be mad at me if it's not a good enough story. Um, well, I, so I'm not originally from Massachusetts. I, I always say that because I always have an outsider's perspective on things. And I think that that's both positive and negative when it comes to this work. But I grew up in Virginia and um, just outside DC. So Northern Virginia. I don't claim Southern Virginia and all of that. I'm a Northern Virginia girl. Um, and I have always wanted to be a therapist. I realized very early on that being a doctor required a lot of science and math, and I'm pretty terrible in both those areas. So I went with the next best thing, which was the helper. Um, so I've always wanted to be a therapist. So I volunteered a ton when I was in, in high school, got to my bachelor's level graduated early so that I could start my master's degree right away. I was super heavily focused on becoming a therapist and I have always wanted to work with kids. Um, when I was in high school, I had a best friend who had significant mental health issues, several hospitalizations, had to be homeschooled at one point, um, multiple attempts at um, self-harm and um, suicide. And it was incredibly stressful <laughs> and yeah powerful for me to be able to be helpful to him at times and at times when I wasn't helpful. Um, and I, I distinctly remember one time being shooed away by the adults, like, we got this, everything's under control. Let the professionals help him now. I will never forget that line because it was in that moment that I said at 16, I'm going to be a therapist and I will never be shooed away again. And that's super pompous of me to say, like, I need to, I need to always be in the room. But it was this feeling of, I want to have the necessary credentials and experience and skill to never have to leave the room with, with someone I care about. Right. And I did that. <laughs> I worked really, really hard and moved several times, um, but became a therapist and have always worked with children um, and adolescents particularly. Because I love working with kids and because I don't like being um, up in the morning, I've always worked in later jobs. So residential work, um, in-home therapy work. So I've always worked with some of the toughest kids in whatever state I was living in, which meant that I had to then work with the, not just their mental health stuff, but the trauma that came from living in poor communities, living in crime-ridden communities. Um, there's trauma associated with being um, a person of color oftentimes. And so all of these layers have really impacted my interest in counseling and my motivation for counseling. And so now my primary focus has been on supporting children and teens um, from marginalized communities, whether that's physically, you know, working with kids in Springfield or working with kids on a reservation to right now working with kids in Wilbraham but I primarily support those kids from marginalized communities. So a lot of kids with um, a disability, a lot of kids from the LGBTQ population, and um, most importantly to me are the, the families of color. And so that's sort of where I'm at now um, from, a, from a journey perspective. I feel like there's so many more, to, so many more things to share, but that's where I'm gonna <laughs> stop my work. Right no, no vats of chemicals that give you superpowers or anything like that? You know, I think my superpower is that I never stop thinking. 
and I never stop moving. Like I'm the most restless sleeper. I'm the most restless mover. I never physically stop. Um, and that has given me the ability to do, to, to dip my toe into a lot of different things and to have a lot of things going on all at once. Um, what most people don't realize is that I also um, am in the process of starting a nonprofit to support students of color. Um, I also do a tremendous amount of work in our schools um, in terms of the diversity and equity initiatives in our schools um, and PTO president at my son's elementary school. Nice. Um, and I teach um, at Bay Path on top of my full-time private practice because I never stop moving. You answered one of our last questions first, but we'll, we'll get to that. What What yeah. is your true life superpower? But it, I think it's pertinent to put that out there because so much of what you do, as you outlined, is really important and especially transitioning between different areas of life and different places that you've lived and now having a hub in, in Wilbraham, which is my guess would be because I've worked there is completely different kind of than working in, um, you know, different populations, right? Because um, Wilbraham is a predominantly, you know, white town, affluent town, and has a lot of, um, as you and I have talked about in the past, has a lot of issues going on with school with, uh, you know, DEI needs, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I'm really excited to dive into that. And I'm glad that you put that out there all the work that you're doing because that will allow us to access these things a little bit easier as we continue to talk about this so you have a way better origin story on becoming a therapist than I did do the <laughs> listeners of this will know there was a period in high school where I didn't know what I wanted to do uh you know I was, I was helpful for my friends and working through stuff but I took an aptitude test and I said I should go into psychology. And then my only point of reference for that was growing pains because Alan Thicke's character was a therapist and worked at home. And I was like, oh, that seems pretty cool. And then very early on, I realized it was a lot different. <laughs> Obviously, a naive teenager. Had, so much had this idea. In it. Yeah. Um, and then you, you outlined kind of that transition. So you were talking specifically about working with underserved populations. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that and, and what drew you to that specifically? Sure. So I, you know, full disclosure, I grew up in a fairly middle class community in the D, the metropolitan DC area in Northern Virginia, where the, there were a lot of very, very rich people, a lot of very poor people and everybody kind of in the middle um, within the district. But mm -hmm. my town, my, not town rather, but my neighborhood was pretty, um, pretty middle class. Um, and very diverse. But because my school was so large, I was able to, to meet and, and um, socialize with so many different groups of people that when I graduated and got into working, I wanted to be the most helpful I could be. So I went straight for the Department of Youth Services. So our kids with criminal histories and criminal records and worked in a um, residential group home. So a therapeutic group home for kids who were too unsafe to be in their own homes and the court has placed them there for treatment. And I worked primarily with um, adolescent girls and dealt with issues of um, sex trafficking and drug use and um, wanting to run away and trauma history and just all kinds of very layered stuff mm -hmm. that extended beyond just, I don't want to go to school and I get into fights. Just so much 
extra stuff that um, I said, you know, this is it. I want to work with these kids, whether they are kids from poor communities or kids from affluent communities, they all seem to have the same struggle, which is when you get stuck, when you're hurting, when someone has, when you've been victimized in some way, when someone has hurt you in some way, you get stuck and you end up engaging in these really unsafe practices. But then when we moved, my husband and I um, relocated to Massachusetts, um, finding a job was a little bit difficult and nobody wants to work with low-income families, it seems like, because they don't pay a whole lot. And so I ended up doing that work and doing in-home therapy supportive, um, both the case management role, but also the actual clinical work. And again, working with families on mass health. So those are the, the poorest, neediest families that um, we have in Massachusetts, typically, and um, loved that work, loved it. And like clockwork, three years later, my husband and I moved yet again <laughs> to <laughs> South Dakota, um, of all places. He got a teaching position there. And there, if, if anybody's ever been to South Dakota, most of the state is impoverished. Most yeah. of the state um, functions off of a Medicaid, um, uh, Medicaid health insurance system, if they are insured at all. And so that was huge in terms of seeing what rural America looks like and what their struggles are. And one of the things that I found was that their reasons for struggle may be different in terms of, you know, and um, one community may be dealing with crime and drug issues and lack of, of, of good wages, but another community is struggling with poor resources, lack of job opportunities um, and poor education that, that stifles them. Both of them develop the same sets of mental health challenges, the same issues, so to speak. It's just how they got there that was a little different. Um, and I loved the work there. I loved the work with rural white families, um, devout Christians and, um, and farmers to working with native families, which was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I've worked primarily with, with Latinos and, um, and African-Americans. And this was one of my first opportunities to work with native people and to understand the real pain and intergenerational trauma associated with living, um, with being a native person and trying to live both on the reservation and off the reservation in such a rural um, and just, just poorly developed um, communities. It was so incredibly eye-opening. And so to come back <laughs> to, to Massachusetts after three or four years and to, to start anew and to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to working with my kids with trauma and, um, and behavioral issues, I did that until I realized that that's just not sustainable when you have kids that working all hours of the night and supporting mm -hmm. kids at 3 a.m. because they're having nightmares and wanting to jump out of a window. Um, it's just not sustainable when you're raising young children. And so that's how I ended up moving into private practice and really having to shift my mindset around how to support um, families that are not struggling with basic needs anymore. They're struggling with more, um, not necessarily more complicated, but just just different mm -hmm. sets of, of problems and challenges. Yet PTSD is the same, whether you are a rich kid in a mansion to where you are living in a group home, your symptoms are the same. It's okay. just the resources that we put in place that works for them. Yeah, that's a that's a very important part of paying attention to the mental health journey is because there's so much 
there's so many nuances to it, right? And, you know, the move to understanding ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences, you know, that happens no matter where you're at and how that affects other things throughout your life and how you deal with those mental health concerns is different based on your environment, but the root cause of some of these things or the expression of some of these things biologically and, and mentally is, is very similar. Absolutely. And I, I find that I, I love the ACE, the ACE questionnaire. I give it to every client mm -hmm. because I want to know kind of how they, how they view themselves, how they, how they identify their struggles. Um, and, and it's all to me about identifying protective factors and identifying those, those supports for them, because that to me is the most um, likelihood of a positive outcome is not just the treatment, but it's the, the resources and the support that that child's going to get. Right. And I, one of the things I've encountered counseling, you know, for, I don't know, it's been about like 13 or 14 years since I've been counseling and I started in residential too, which, which is very drawing, but also very draining and not based on the kids that you serve, but more of the system and sometimes coworkers who are there just kind of for a paycheck. It, it's very complicated working in that system for sure. And, you know, I, I think strength-based, resource-based and support-based interventions and uh, information gathering is super important to do any of that work because in the core of working with someone, you could, it's very easy to get stuck in, here's all the issues, here's all the problems without identifying a lot of the strengths that go with those families or with those individuals, which I think, um, you know, obviously you can isolate the causes and the issues, but then to really get generative work out of it, it it's building those strengths and relying on those strengths and supports that that really does a lot of the work in what we do. Absolutely, absolutely. If you can't identify the strengths and the supports for a child, I don't know how you, how can you sustain treatment? It, right. it can't be a de complete deficit model. Right. Hey, how do you even engage with so a much young more kid? Than just their <laughs> right. How do you even engage in a way if you're only focused on oh, here's these issues we have to deal with, because I think so much of that rapport building is also identifying and helping identify uh, those strengths and supports. Definitely. I always joke around with some of the kids that I see, and they they kind of look at me weird when I sit with them, like, why are you joking so, <laughs> so much? And then obvi obviously within an uh, appropriate level, you know, if they're getting into trauma or or any significant things I'm not cracking cracking dad jokes uh, to them but one of the things I feel like my personality in rapport building is related to is that ability to have that space to have humor and laughter in meetings as well and uh, one of my favorite things is to see them come in and just bust on me too and kind of make fun of my haircut or my beard or my mustache or whatever is going on for me that day because it allows me to feel like, okay, we're connecting on a way that will eventually help us do some more of the work. Absolutely. They need to have such a uniquely different relationship with you as a counselor than any other relationship they have with anyone else. Right. They, you can't just be the teacher. You can't just be a like a caregiver, particularly in a, in a um, group home setting. You're not just the resource provider. You know, you have to be, you have to be more to these kids 
um, in such a more intimate way than they are with their own parents, because they're oftentimes sharing things with you they won't even tell their parents. And that mm-hmm. comes from building that trust. And trust is met with authenticity and, and making certain you keep your word. So I always make certain that I'm as, as truly my, as authentic as I need to be, which means that I oftentimes will tell a stupid joke <laughs> that's not very funny, yeah. mostly corny, um, that we are, that I own my own stuff in session, right? So if I do mm-hmm. something silly or, you know, like, oh no, you know, Mr. Renee too did. Oh, well, what do we do when that happens, right? Like that right. it's just being our authentic self. Yeah. Usually think- that includes trying to go play some soccer and missing the ball. Being yeah. Up for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um which is and it, i don't know if you were there when that when i when we were working in the group private practice together but i would usually um you might see me on any given day doing the worm in the waiting room because i lost a, a wager in uno to to a kid be, be doing something silly in front of people and so i i really find being able to engage in that way just really breaks down a lot of the walls eventually and you know so obviously a long game but I think it's it's great that you're doing that work and you know people like you are out there supporting other kids who really need that connection in so many ways so an important thing that that you mentioned that I think is really important Oh, sorry. I think we had a little overlap. Oh, I was saying I love my job. It's so much more fun than working with adults. Kids are so much more fun. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. Um, one of the things you were saying when you moved back to Massachusetts and then eventually when you came into the, the private practice aspect of this was um, balancing where you were at in your life with the needs you had for that, but then also in doing the work that you love to do, which I think as a therapist is a really hard thing to do and find your own boundary setting with with these things, because it's really easy to get drawn into, well, I have to show up, I have to be here, because some of these kids or some of these clients that I work with don't have that uh, stability. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit of how you were able to kind of work through that a little bit in your own life, and what were some of the major things that allowed you to pay attention to taking care of yourself so that you could be this space for, for others? So I think for me, it came down to what do my kids need with anything? So not even what do I need, but what do my kids need? And so um, I just asked, I asked my kids what, I asked my oldest who's eight, um, what he wanted when I was, I think I, he was four three or four. And I said, when do you want mommy to come home? And I realized that a three or four-year-old generally can't tell you a whole lot, but it was nice to hear some of his answers to get a Mm. sense for what he wanted more than anything, which was for me to put him to bed, for me to make him breakfast in the the morning, um, to sit and snuggle and read stories, right? That he's able to tell me what he wants. So then I generated a schedule that allowed me to be able to do those things. What I found though, by switching to private practice is I lost the, the, um, stress and, and not in a bad way, like the, the, the excitement of, um, a crisis, so to speak, like there's a problem and we need a a resolution quickly. And I thrive off of that. I absolutely love those moments where we're trying to resolve something, um, and we need to do it very quickly. And that happens very easily in the, in the world of, um, group homes and in foster care, there's always something coming up and it doesn't necessarily have to be like a dangerous crisis. It could be something like, you know, the car broke down at the foster home and there's no one to take the kid to school and they don't have a bus. 
to their school. And so what are we going to do? And in this world, um, this, in this world, we have to come up with some sort of, right. When you're the, the, the therapist in that situation, I loved those moments. So when I switched to private practice and I didn't have that, I didn't have kids with these very layered and complex trauma histories. They were pretty straightforward problems. I was really bored (laughs) and that was not going to be sustainable for me. So if I start to get too bored, I'm going to start to get very lazy at work. And then my quality of work is going to go down. So that's when I started to shift into working with my kids' school um, and the community. And I thought to myself, I can't help every single kid with every single problem, which is where the residential work wasn't going so well, as I was trying to do too much with not enough resources, not enough help. But I can work on things that are meaningful to my children and to um, children like my my kids. Both my kids are biracial. They both have um, special needs and disabilities. And so they have more, they have more complex needs at school than the average kid. And so that's where um, the, a lot of the volunteer work kicked in. And that's what has been able to help me balance my work with my clients and this need for more without it getting to be too overwhelming. Because it's a volunteer gig, I can choose what I want and I don't feel as compelled to stick around the way that I would if I have a client that has their counseling journey hasn't completed yet I'm really kind of tired and need to take a step back I don't have that challenge anymore that's awesome what have you found in doing that work because I know that you and I have connected in a couple groups on Facebook and and social media around the importance of that and you've been really vocal or reaching out to people anyone who's worked within that community to to kind of take a look at some of the the spaces that aren't being addressed what has been some of that work for you that's really um I don't want to say refreshing but recharging and motivating you to kind of keep doing that volunteer work because I think the flip side of the volunteer work is you know there there needs to be something connected to it that's really passionate and and draw like pulling you towards it to keep that afloat especially on top of working keep it going so let's Let's backtrack for just a second to make sure viewers kind of understand the Wilbraham. Yeah, so sure. The Hamden Wilbraham Hamden Wilbraham Regional School District is two towns combined, Hamden and Wilbraham, that are predominantly white. Um, Hamden is about ninety percent white, and Wilbraham, I believe, is close to to eighty percent, eighty five percent white. And so the school makeup is approximately two students of color to eight, um, two to two to ten. So for out of every 10 kids, about two of them are students of color. So a very small number of kids um, get to see themselves on a daily basis. And that's an increase in the last five, six years. It used to be much closer to like 90, 95% white. And so historically speaking, students of color and students from marginalized communities like the LGBTQ community have felt ostracized and ignored and issues of racism and, and race challenges in the school system has been horrendous at how they have responded to it, either diminishing of the situation, flat out ignoring the situation, or blaming the person who was marginalized in that moment. And so this is 20 years of of 20, 30, 40 years of this going on. But in the last, I would say, 10 years, families have really started to push back against these, these issues. More families of color continue to move in, just as we continue to diversify all parts of our, our country more families of color are moving in and more of them are using their voices and really pushing the narrative. And so that's the work that I have been doing, which is 
to give voice to families that are not comfortable speaking up against these issues. And, and because of that clinical background, being able to speak to the, the mental health ramifications, of not addressing issues of racism and bigotry in school right. and issues where uh, microaggressions are rampant with teachers just to students and really focusing on that piece. So the main piece that I started with was just understanding the community. So I wanted to meet with as many people as I could, both families, staff, and administration to get a sense and a handle on things. And now my move, my movement or my focus is on um, systematically making changes. So that was one of the number one reasons I joined PTO and, and ultimately ended up being PTO president was to be able to influence the activities and the, um, the decisions that were made around purchasing items for the school. And so in my first year, we purchased over 100 books, all of um, all children from diverse backgrounds and diverse stories. And so that made it so that when a kid went into the school library, they, they were more likely to see themselves in the right. stories that we had because prior to that, um, this winter we're doing a um, holiday celebration. The theme is holidays around the world. And so children travel from station to station participating in traditional Christmas and winter holiday activities. We're making certain to, to ensure it's an internationally um, sound activity and, and also incorporating different clubs and organizations at the high school um, so that kids are able to connect with their, their you know, older kids. But more than anything, our teens are able to give back to our, our younger youth. And so there's a student from, who is originally from Ghana who is incredibly excited to host a Ghana table and to talk about his, his family's celebrations and what it looks like in their country to celebrate Christmas. And so these are the types of things that I do in my volunteer work because in my sessions, I hear my anxiety is raised because of insert a microaggression. Right. I feel isolated and alone because of being the only kid of, of color in my class or in my, um, on my basketball team or my school team. And so the goal here is to provide education and opportunity and community for these kids so that when my kids become middle schoolers and high schoolers, they're not telling the same stories of the clients that I see, that I see now. Right. I think that's so powerful and beautiful of a sentiment to, to pay attention to is, is really bringing these perspectives and stories and, and different backgrounds to the forefront. Because I think, you know, as you know, and working with, with any kid in general, when you feel isolated, that's where some of these things become bigger and, and more unmanageable. And so your ability to engage in that way and help these kids find their voice is, is amazing. And I think even in some of the stuff I've seen you post on social media and the work you're doing in, in, in the school systems, I think you're highlighting from, from everything I've read, you know, these kids are becoming more empowered and taking more of a lead. And I think that's what it's really beautiful uh, about some of this movement in life, as you said, trying to diversify more parts of the, the country, trying to, to be more aware of this, is that these, this younger generation is taking up the reins much more than the generation I grew up in. They're doing amazing. No idea about anything. They're doing amazing work. I had a, no, none of this stuff, right? And I grew up in an incredibly diverse community and this stuff never, it doesn't register the same way. It didn't register the same way. Right. I had a middle schooler come um, 
it wasn't a client of mine, but a, um, a you know, mutual friend said that she was, a, a, they were putting flags in the cafeteria at the middle school, all these different um, countries and all these different things, um, affinity groups represented. And she said, there's no pride flag. Why is there no pride flag? And so she marched down to the principal's office and demanded, we're talking a seventh grader, that a pride flag be added to the flag wall. And within a week it was. And so that weird. to me, that is the most, the most meaningful thing is that this girl knew that her, that her identity needed to be represented, that it, was, that it was valued and meaningful and that she was able to advocate for herself. She didn't need a counselor to do it. She didn't need a parent to do it. She did it herself. But what was most important to me was that the, the principal responded and didn't just brush it aside or ignore it or, or act as though that question wasn't there, but that they heard her and they responded. Yeah. And that's, the, that's to me, the most meaningful thing is that, the, that that's the work I do is to try to get those kids and those families to be able to ask really small things and for our school district to respond in come. Because that could have been very easily written off as, well, you're in seventh grade. You don't get to make these decisions or, or you know, whatever the old metric used to be of I'm an adult, I'm in charge you whatever we can't that's not the rules or whatever and so you know the tenacity of being able to go down and have that strength of will and be empowered to do that it's amazing and you know we're recording this before november 8th election right and that's what makes me feel really regardless of the outcome obviously i'm, I'm hoping for it to go one way one way or over the other but the youth <laughs> i think is showing can we take a second can we take a second and just highlight um, Charlotte Powell, who is a 14-year-old girl who has biked. I'm going to make sure you get her contact information because she should be one of your next interviewees. Yeah, for she sure. She biked 300 miles, 300 miles, and registered 100 voters from Wilbraham, Massachusetts to Seneca Falls, um, New York because of her belief in the power of the vote, Absolutely. that it mattered so much to her what's happened the course of this country that her, they have to do like some sort of like leadership civic project at her school and that's what she chose. And she trained all summer long to be able to, to be do, able to, to yeah. have the stamina to do that. Yeah. To be able to do that. That's a, an amazing that's the power dedication, of yeah. I actually got into, uh, I, I don't want to say argument, but uh, about a year back, I got into all our favorite social media debates, let's say, of people commenting on posts. And someone had commented uh, about how useless they thought, thought that the youth was. It was in the midst of, uh, you know, the Tide Pod challenges and, and things of that nature. And so mm -hmm. they were trying to comment on that saying, you know, um, this new generation is terrible and not realizing that the generation that they grew up in, which is around the same age as me, was also doing stupid things uh, like all generations do, right? But really hyper-focusing on that. And, you know, my response to that was kind of what you were talking about here is there's way more strength and empowerment, I think, in the youth right now. Um, obviously, that 
that's kind of a blanket statement because in every generation there are people who who have that that skill set but for me as i owned being a, a senior in high school and only understanding mental health and the concept of uh growing pains and alan thick being a therapist um you know we were talking about we were debating about that and i and i think one of the reasons i usually don't get into the social media things but one of the reasons i did was because I was so connected to the youth in counseling them and the strength I see in them every day, even just coming into sessions and being vulnerable is mind blowing. And I didn't want this person to take shots at people that they didn't even know just based on, you know, TikTok trends or, or things of that nature. And so all the work that I see you doing and the youth that I, I, I work with, and then just the youth in general of friends that I see doing you know, being empowered and going to these rallies and going to these marches and ho hosting them a lot of times is so amazing. And it, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and have you come on is just to put a highlight on, on this too and the work that you're doing with this youth. Your kids are amazing. They're just, they are, they're incredibly amazing. And the reality is, is that every generation has knuckleheads, every generation has <laughs> yeah. leaders and everybody has somewhere in between. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I don't see, there's a lot, there's a lot of people we don't claim in our generation as being yeah. our primary voice, but right. the, the reality is that there are more kids now capable of leading in a way that I don't think our generation was, was no. capable. They just have more drive, more power, more knowledge and more insight. Um, and, and as things continue to shift in our country and not necessarily for the better, I think they are more, they're more prepared to fight in a way that maybe we weren't as ready for. Right. That's awesome. So you already answered one of my last questions about what your true life superpower <laughs> is. So I'm gonna ask you a couple more just to kind of wrap up the interview. I wish that this had gone sure. longer my mistake on the tech stuff but um some really good stuff always happy to come back anytime all right yeah we'll definitely have to do it because i think uh, i want to talk more about the nonprofit you're building and and the work that you're doing with all of this stuff um so one of the questions i have it's kind of geeky after all the stuff that we've been talking about but since your your son is really into marvel i think it will fit perfect perfectly with this interview so we said what your true life superpower is. If you could have any superpower, assuming that the world- ah, I actually just asked this of my students. <laughs> what would it be in I just asked this of my students. Okay, what would my superpower be? That is a, I, that's always a really good question. I think I would want to be able to absorb people's unmanageable emotions mm. not that they took them away i don't want to i don't like to remove people's emotion but to be able to pull it out enough for them to tolerate because every person can tolerate but so much of an emotion right we have we have we all can do but so much and i've always had the capacity to sort of hold people's emotions in a in a manageable way without taking them on too much so I'd love the power to be able to actually pull that out of people, to pull some of that unmanageable pain and suffering out so that they can move forward. Yeah, it's amazing. 
that's a good way. Again, my answer was a cheap answer is a way to get more powers. Whereas you're like, oh, I really want to. <laughs> I would love to be more power. <laughs> so it's really good. If you someone once to... asked me why I didn't want to fly, and I said I'm afraid of heights. I have no interest in flying from one place to the other. Like that's that's not something I want. I don't want X-ray vision. Yeah. I don't want to see inside people. I don't want to read your mind because yeah. I don't know what to, I don't want to know what you're thinking about. Yeah, I like the boundary. Maybe cloning. I might like cloning. Yeah. Yeah. I, like the I might like cloning. Um, I might like telekinesis because then somebody could do the laundry. I could just sit still while the laundry was being folded right. on its own and, and I could cook a meal on its own and things like that. I might like that one. All right. So the first answer is just I don't kind think of I would what you would do for society. The second is like how you would <laughs> like powers to make your life a little bit easier if you needed to. So that's good. Certainly. Right. Like if you're going to have a, a superpower, you generally have to use it in some, you know, some good way. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I'm just going to have powers to have powers and I'm not actually going to help the world in any way, I'd probably be pretty happy with cloning myself or um, telekinesis. I'd be okay with those too. Yeah. One of my favorite things is when I'm talking to people, they'll often say, how come you don't want to read people's mind? Wouldn't, wouldn't that make your job easier? And what I usually tell them is I'm, I'm really happy with the boundary of just being a therapist. So I don't have to necessarily... <laughs> do all of that work that that would entail. And so close enough without having to have that intensity that that kind of comes in. Exactly. It just feels too invasive to me. Yeah. And, and too many thoughts. There's too many, too many competing thoughts that people have. I don't, I don't have space to hold all that. No, it's a lot. If you had any recommendations for anyone who's listening to this, either uh, of the younger generation or the older generations or the multiple generations in between, what would be a recommendation you would give them if they wanted to become more involved in the work that you're doing or the work in their own communities that could have similar benefits and empower youth and really work towards um, those goals that we had mentioned earlier? That's a great question. So the work that I'm doing is directly tied. I was singularly focused on school. And there's many ways to support issues of di increasing diversity, addressing equity issues and ensuring inclusion. But I focused my work on being present and offering those ideas. So present meaning when there was a committee, I raised my hand, I will show up and get an offer my feedback and my, my service. When there's a position to fill in our schools, I will, I'm there to do it. And, and not just the stuff that's about diversity and equity, but just I want to be there and be present. So, you know, I'll drop off the donuts and I'll, um, you know, I'll comb the kids hair at picture day, all of these things, because it builds connection to the school and the community so that when I push back, it's taken seriously because I'm not just there to push back. I'm there in so many other capacities and it, and it also helps to build connection. So when I push back, you know, my kids, you know, me and how I operate, right? So it isn't just yeah. that I do all these good things and these kind things for the school. It's you know me and you know my intention. So when I think about how can someone of my age or older participate, it's volunteer. It's sign up for stuff at school because you get a voting voice. It, you get to vote and have power. You get to share your opinion. You get to pick out and select items like the, the books or the, the assemblies or things like that when you participate, when you show up. And for, for kids, I would say that not only do you get to participate when they ask you to participate and show up, 
but continue to use your voice, continue to talk. Because one of the great things about being a kid is you get excused a lot for doing it the wrong way, for, for speaking out of turn or for saying something that wasn't so rude or, or that was rude or didn't come out exactly the right way. But no one's going to tell you to stop talking, right? right? They're going to tell you how to talk a little differently and to bring it up in a different way. But your voice is your true, true power. That is the thing that nobody can take away from you. And you get a little grace and a little cushion because you're still learning. Whereas an adult has to figure out how to say it in a kinder, gentler way. And to be, to be respected, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think it's really good recommendation. Like it's a really good recommendation of being present and being involved and connecting too, because I think a lot of people will see things like this election or elections in general and saying, that's where I have to show up. And yes, that's true. But so much of that work is done before these things on a, on a community-based uh, platform. And if you're not participating in that, or if you're not active in connecting with the community, when it does come time for that, like you said, they're going to be like, who's, who's this person that's just showing up and pushing back? And so I, I think that's really amazing, um, a recommendation for anyone to, to be involved. And that idea of, you know, having a beginner's mind as you enter into that and seeing how things work and being able to do that for, for youth is awesome. Very cool. All right. So last Plus question. You, I, I love the financial aspect of it. <laughs> you get the money when you participate in stuff, you get to allocate funds in different ways. Right. So then you get to purchase stuff that's meaningful. Yes, that exactly. Fun for me. And it can, it can kind of go in a way that will sharpen the community and strengthen the community in a way that makes sense for the work that you're doing it's kind of like a real life video game where you get like experience points and you have to allocate them to the strengths and skills that you would want to build up for your character exactly so it's awesome any if you had to if you had to this is the last question if you had to sum up what we've been talking about in this this episode for the listener, one one takeaway that you really want people, you've, you've had like 25 of them already. So I, if you can't come <laughs> up with one, I think it's okay. I think there's a lot of takeaway here. But if you had to sum up into one kind of pitch for the episode of what you would want listeners to take away from it, what would that be? So I guess I would want listeners to take away from this that there's an element of advocacy that occurs in counseling as a counselor. And there's an element of advocacy that comes from being a parent and a community member. And that your power to advocate based off the knowledge you have as a parent, as a, as a community member, as a therapist is what moves our, our society forward. It isn't just the work in the the session. It isn't just the work of raising your kid. It isn't just the, the work of being a good citizen. It's moving forward on things that are meaningful to you. It's doing that extra work for the things that are meaningful to you. And if enough people do that, if enough people advocate for the things that matter to them, our society moves forward. If the only thing that we focus on is what's right in front of us, the session in front of us, the, the kid needing to learn their spelling words, the needing to get my car inspected. If that's the only thing we focus on, then we stall. 
And I am just not in the business of saying stuff. As I said before, I am always moving. Amazing. I think I, that's a perfect summation of everything we've talked about. So thank you so much, Renee. Always an honor to talk with you. Always an honor to to be able to get some insight from you and you know, super honored to have you come on the podcast today and, and share all of that with everyone. Thank you for calling me up and asking me to come on. <laughs> <laughs>